Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this week, if it's in the sea, is there plastic in the fish that we're eating too? Also, can electrical devices affect your fertility? And how does the Earth's tilt give us our seasons? This week, we're taking on the science questions that you have been sending in. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, just before we start the programme properly, I do have a very important announcement to make, and that is that we're launching our Christmas appeal. I will give you much more in the way of details at the end of the programme, but we do need your help, and we've explained how we need you to help us on our website at nakedscientist.com slash donate. Right, let's introduce the panel of people who are here to solve your scientific quandaries and conundrums this week. Or should that be conundra? Danny Green is from Anglia Ruskin, and uh, she's also an ecologist. The oceans have really been in the spotlight this year, haven't they, with all the plastics and things? Yeah, well, I mean, it's great because I've been working on plastics the last seven years, and thanks to the Attenborough effect, we've um, we've finally got pretty much global consensus that people are interested in this and they want to solve the problem, so it's great. How much rubbish actually is in the oceans in terms of plastics? A lot. <laughs> I think 320 um, million tonnes are produced every year and around 10% of that makes its way into the rivers and waterways as litter. Goodness. And once it's there, it just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't, or it breaks down into smaller pieces called microplastics. Which we're going to find out about. So Danny's here to answer any questions about marine biology and marine science and plastics in the ocean. So if you'd like to ask her a question, now is your chance. Sitting next to Danny is Tim Revel. He is the assistant news editor at New Scientist. So you should be across lots of hot science stories, lots of things coming across your desk all the time. Yeah, we have loads of big stories all the time and, um, you know, often talking about artificial intelligence or the latest technology such as 3D printing. But one of the big ones we've had recently was questioning arguably the biggest discovery in physics in the last few years, and that is gravitational waves, whether we actually spotted them or not. Why are people sceptical? 
It all comes down to the fact that it's so difficult to spot gravitational waves because even though they're caused by massive events in space, by the time they get to Earth, they're very, very tiny ripples. We're talking about measuring something smaller than the size of a proton. So actually being able to find them is really, really difficult and involves lots of data processing and analysis and algorithms. And all of that means that it's a bit tricky for someone else to check the work of the people who've done it. And so when people have come in afterwards and had a look at what they've done, they've sort of said, maybe you have made a mistake. And that's where the uh, difficulty lies. I think Bill Bryson argued that one of the smallest things on in the world is uh, some of the components in an airfix kit, which he said <laughs> roughly on the scale of a proton. I think I'd be inclined to agree with him. Anyway, Tim's here to answer your questions about things relevant to technology. Uh, James Pope is a newcomer to the programme. Welcome, James. He's from the British Antarctic Survey and you study climate. But why is everyone obsessing about the poles? Because no one lives at the poles, really, do they? So why is it important to study the poles when the majority of the world's population are not there? The polar regions are just so important for climate change. With You've got ice sheets, um, which can affect sea level rise. You've got sea ice, which can affect the temperature at the high latitudes and maybe accelerate warming in these regions. And also very important for uptake of carbon into the oceans, heat into the oceans, and even the circulation, which can affect the nice warm temperatures we have in the UK. So in other words, it really matters what goes on in the poles because it does have an impact here, whether we like it or not. And I guess it's also a barometer for what's going to happen everywhere. If you look at what's happening in the poles, it's a reflection on what's happening worldwide. Yes, people talk about the poles as being sort of the canary in the coal mine. Thank you very much, James. And uh, also with us is Laura Carter-Penman, who is a fertility nurse at Bourne Hall. I guess it doesn't take too much explanation of what fertility is, but what does a fertility nurse do? We assist people through their fertility journey. We advise them on what is the best course of action, what is the best treatment. And we also provide quite a strong counselling role, because as you can imagine for patients, it's a very stressful time. And we support them through that journey. If they've got a question about their fertility that they'd like to ask, I'd be happy to help. And there should be no pregnant pauses in the programme. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Much. Now, before we dive into the questions, for those of you at home, we've got a little Guess Who quiz running through the programme. We did this last week, so our congratulations to Nick D, Faye Briggs, Jenny Laville and Strawman, who all got in touch and messaged us with the right answer. We're going to be scattering clues to the mystery, Who Am I?, right through the programme. So listen up for those clues and see if you can work out who or what makes this sound. What do you think? All will be revealed later. More clues on the way. Now, we've got uh, Steve on the line from Telford for you, Danny. Hello, Steve. Hi. My question is, if, if microplastics are affecting the fish in the oceans, is this knowing the food chain that we are consuming? Thanks for your question, Steve. Um, short answer is yes. Um, there's been quite a lot of evidence finding microplastics in fish that we eat, um, also in bivalves, animals that we eat whole, because quite often the microplastics are in the guts of the animals. But actually, we've found microplastics in honey, beer, tap water, bottled drinking water, pop drinks. It's, it's in our food, yeah. Why does it matter, though? I, I guess is that, is that what, what you're worried about, Steve, the fact that if we're eating it, uh, we're getting a diet of plastic, but does that matter? To be honest with you, I watched the programme on BBC about the plastics in the ocean, where they said there was 55 trillion, trillion pieces of plastic there. So I did a bit of research myself, um, 
trying to find out anything about it and within an hour uh, what I found was quite horrific with estrogen being one of the main things that was being released into the oceans and that gets in the food chain then it's going to affect the male population as well as the female population if it's not already been doing it for the last 20, 30 years or so. Danny? So there is um, some evidence that microplastics can absorb these other persistent organic pollutants but the evidence is inconclusive, actually, because some studies have found that they can absorb these things from the water column and they keep hold of them and then they get pooped out the other end and actually stop the animal from absorbing them into their own body. And other studies have found the opposite, that they release them. And given that we've very recently there's been evidence that microplastics are in human poo, researchers in Austria... Um, and it's a preliminary study. It's not a published piece of work yet, so we take it with a pinch of salt. But it's very likely or that we are eating... a pinch of plastic, even. A pinch, yeah, take it with a pinch of microplastics. It's very likely that we are eating and inhaling microplastics, and we definitely need more research to find out about these other effects. And, Laura, what about the point that Steve makes about oestrogens and things like that? These are female hormones that are in water that might be picked up by these plastics and then get into our bodies. Is there evidence for that sort of phenomenon? Yeah, there is evidence out there that that is occurring and that there are higher levels of oestrogen within our waters. Does that make a difference? It does make a difference because it's impacting on the male factor and it's actually then leading on to reductions in sperm because it's um, affecting testosterone production as well. So it's something that we need to be aware of. There's evidence that some animals, some aquatic animals, are also being impacted, isn't there? I mean, we've seen fish changing sex and so on. Is Is that through this phenomenon? Yeah, so that's this phenomenon. Not linked to microplastics directly, but linked to the oestrogen in the water, nonetheless, from the contraceptive pill. Yep. So fish, seals, so marine mammals as well, and um, other invertebrates too. Danny, are are scientists actively monitoring this, and do they have any solutions? Because I know we we know that there are plastics in the ocean. It's one thing to say they're there. It's another to actually do something about it. Can Can we remedy this? I think in terms of trying to remove microplastics, I think it's going to be very difficult because most of them sink. So 98% of them sink to the benthos, to the seafloor. And obviously, if you're trying to dredge them out, you're going to cause more damage than good. In terms of trying to remedy the situation, I think it's prevention is better than cure in this case. We need to stop putting it into the oceans. Yeah. Um, so basically, we've done what we have done, but now we've got to make, yeah, we need not to switch to even worse. safer plastics as well, so BPA-free, which a lot of actually a lot of drinks companies have already done. Well, thank you, Danny. Tim, up in the air now for you. Robert wants to know how high and how fast could all-electric aircraft fly, and and how far away are we from actually having an electric aeroplane as reality? I'd say we're still quite a long way from the reality of flying around rather in uh, sort of jumbo jets like they are, but electric versions. That's not happening anytime soon. And the problem is with electric aircraft is it just takes so much energy to fly anything But with an electric aircraft, you need a lot of batteries and batteries are really, really heavy. And the heavier something is, the more energy it needs. So the more batteries you need. And if you've ever flown a drone, you will have seen this. You get these tiny little drones that get into the air really, really quickly and a lot of fun to fly around. And eight minutes later, your battery is flat. You can get some slightly bigger drones, but even the big ones, they're much, much heavier. But even those can only fly for 30 minutes or an hour. We're talking about very short periods of time. But That's not to say we don't have any electric planes. There are some that have been successful. And perhaps the most famous one is called Solar Impulse 2. And this one had solar panels on it and was created by a Swiss team. And in 2015, it circumnavigated the globe. But the problem was it had to keep stopping and the whole journey took 16 months. And it only had room for one person. So that's sort of the the height 
as it were, of um, electric planes at the moment. And so to answer the original question, how high and how fast? Well, Solar Impulse 2 um, travelled at about 70 kilometres an hour, which is sort of 43 miles per hour, and was about 12,000 metres in the air or about 40,000 feet. So in terms of height, that's about the same height as a jumbo jet. We're talking similar sort of um, distance into the air. But in terms of speed, a jumbo jet will easily do 500 miles an hour. It was doing 43 miles an hour. So we're a long way off of that. But people would love to have electric aeroplanes because air transport is an absolutely terrible polluter of the air and is also uh, adding to our greenhouse gas emissions. So it's also bad for the environment in many, many different ways. The problem is we just don't have good enough technology yet to make flying aircraft that would be sustainable and that do the job that aircraft currently do. It seems like it all of these issues related to transport come down to batteries and energy supply, don't they? And it's like we're, we're sort of at the precipice here and we, we really need to solve this problem. And no one's yet managed to get over this, this sort of chasm of how we get enough energy packed into something that doesn't weigh more than the aeroplane at the moment and all its fuel and all its passengers. Because that's the problem, isn't it? They're just so heavy, as you say. And, and it's holding back technology for phones it's holding back technology and other communications devices it's holding back technology for cars and so on yeah so in in terms of things like cars and even trucks and also boats they are perhaps more promising than electric planes because the weight isn't as much of an issue yes you still have to get going but actually once you get going uh keeping it going is not nearly as hard as it is to keep something in the air or to get it into the air in the first place and so we're already seeing electric cars sort of making it onto the streets and there are the first examples of um, electric trucks and also electric boats that might be able to um, clean up those industries before we start cleaning up uh, planes thank you for that tim and now moving on James, can you help us with this? Kate Stockings is a geography teacher. She's been in touch. How big a problem really is climate change? Because it's never out of the headlines these days. Is the planet in real danger or is this just hot air? My wife will identify with this piece of pedantry, but I always like to say it's never the planet. We always, when we talk about climate change, we're talking about particularly us as human beings, but also the other animals alive. The planet will carry on regardless. But ultimately, climate change will be as bad as we choose to make it. Um, the Paris Climate Agreement, coming up on three years old now, led to a pretty landmark statement and agreement from so many governments around the world. And that, you know, the 1.5 degrees degree Celsius warming, um, which of which we've already had one degree of, to limit that by the end of the century will be would be really huge. And if we can do that, probably climate change will not be that bad. Um, pretty uh, very much we can adapt to that Um, but that will require quite a strong response we're looking at 50 percent cuts in um, emissions of carbon dioxide by 2030 and then a complete removal of our or a net removal of all our carbon dioxide emissions so we don't we we take out everything we put in and we don't emit anything at all by 2050 so that's really really very soon when you start to consider it you know it's 12 years to 2030 so it's up to us really Thank you, James. The effects of sibling aggression can be more significant than we once thought. 100 electrodes to link my nervous system with a computer and then onto the internet. The Naked Neuroscience podcast explores the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words and neglect might hurt your brain. So you've got the little brain slice in the recording chamber. 
from unravelling Alzheimer's disease to digging into dreams. Join me, Katie Haler, each month as we make connections with scientists around the world and spark up conversations on the latest neuroscience news. You can listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com forward slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The Naked Scientist, we have a panel of experts who are taking on your science questions on the way. Does the Earth's tilt affect our climate? And are rising sea levels really a problem? Before that, though, here's the next part of our Guess Who game for you at home. We played you a strange noise that this animal makes to start with. Here's our clue too. Its eyeball is bigger than its brain. What do you think it is? Now, Laura, what about this one? Um, there's been a bit of discussion on the forum. I wonder if you can help um, with this question from Paul Harrington, who asks this. Can electrical devices reduce fertility? And is it true that tight boxes are bad for sperm? So what do you think? Well, the plain answer is yes, they they can affect. Um, there's minimal research about sort of mobile phones and things like that. Clearly, we don't want to be putting a mobile phone on somebody's testicles for a month to see the effect of the sperm on it. But uh, aren't we effectively <coughs> doing that, Laura? If you ask most men, where do you keep your mobile? It's in their pocket. And where's their pocket? Right next to their nether regions. Exactly. So we would be recommending that you put it in your top shirt pocket if you have one or your back pocket. Or, you know, you see these people, you know, you've got your runners out there where they have this <laughs> strapped onto their arms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that we obviously like to do, we're of a generation of Netflix watchers and what have you, you know, lay in bed with your laptop and where do you put it? Slap bang on your groin. You know, that's about the worst place that you can have it. It's all to do with heat. And actually, the reason the testicles hang outside the body is because sperm likes to sit at about 35 degrees, where your body is at about 37 degrees. So the increase in heat has a real impact on sperm production. So we want to keep the testicles cool. So, from Has what... anyone actually done the study on the laptop effect or the, the warm testes effect? There's the warm testes effect. There has been a lot of research done on that. Who's and... at risk? Cyclists, particularly, with their nice tight lycra. It's not looking looking good for you, Tim. No, not only do I have my phone in my pocket, I cycle to the studio. (laughs) Yeah. Danny? Can I just, a little bit embarrassing, my husband's Dutch and um, we've been together for 10 years and when my dad first met him, one of the first things that he said to him was, you know, what's your bicycle seat like? Is it soft enough? Is it okay? And... (laughs) Well, they've said that it's not so much about the damage, it's all to do with the wearing of the lycra and the heat that's generated really? much more so than the actual damage of the cycling. There's some evidence to that, but most of it's about the fact that you wear nice cosseting oh, he shorts. Wear, he doesn't wear lycra, it's all right then. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to be letting it all hang free. Anatomically, there, there are nerves that run along the bit of your body that then sits down hard on the bicycle seat, aren't there? And yeah. There, there was a suggestion that, that by sitting down hard on the bicycle seat, yeah. you, you can damage those nerves and this may affect your function is is that not such a consideration then not so much of a consideration as the heat but it is still a consideration as is when patients have to have surgery that involves that kind of area then obviously what we would usually recommend is some kind of semen preservation sperm preservation because obviously it can lead to erectile dysfunction which Mm. is more the issue than the the sperm some hot baths and things like that because you know people love a good soak in the tub don't they does that have a consequence 
as long as you're probably not soaking for hours on end, you know, a hot bath now and again is not going to do you too much damage. But obviously, if you are actively trying for a family, we would be recommending cold showers. showers. <laughs> cold showers. But cold shower could have the opposite effect, couldn't it? That's, that's supposed to cool your order? No, no, no definitely not. Get, oh, okay. Getting there together. <laughs> You heard it here first on The Naked Scientist. So, Tim, is it hot baths for you, Tim, then, is it? Or? I'll be taking a cold shower as soon as I get home. <laughs> so, basically, the bottom line is laptop not on your lap then. Yeah, laptop not on your lap on a desk. Or mobile phone not in mo- your pocket. Mobile phone not in your pocket. Nice, cool cotton boxer shorts and cooler showers and not warm baths. Thank you. Laura, here's another question. Hello, Chris. It's Sogat here from Nepal. I have a question about dandruff. Why do these dandruff keep coming back for some person? And is it the skin cell that is shedding? And why does it vary from person to person? And what can be the solution about it? Well, first of all, what actually is dandruff? Well, it's very common. It's more common in men than women. It's more common under the age of 50, and it tends to have its peak onset after puberty kicks in. And that probably happens because once you go through puberty, your hormone profile changes, and your hormone profile, including testosterone and estrogen levels, affect the composition of the secretions that the glands in your skin and scalp put onto the skin surface. And those secretions include oils and other things. And that in turn affects the composition of the microbes the so-called microbiome that lives on the skin and that's probably the key to this because dandruff is flaky skin it's dead bits of skin which is shed all the time but when you get dandruff what's happened is that the process by which the skin renews itself has for some reason speeded up so you're growing more skin and losing more skin and because you're losing more skin you're more likely to see yourself losing more skin which is why you get these little flakes of skin it's nothing to do with hygiene it does appear to be due due to microbes because there are various conditions which are associated with it including an overgrowth of fungus so certain fungi growing on the scalp perfectly naturally and you often see this in young babies actually they get something called cradle cap when a young baby is first born you end up with a flaky skin on the top of the head and it's probably as their own microbiome is first establishing itself you can also get dandruff if you're prone to eczema which is another inflammatory skin condition or sometimes just a certain change in products like shampoos and things which can irritate the skin can cause this to happen and then some people who've got psoriasis as well and psoriasis can sometimes also cause a dandruff like like phenomenon what can you do about it well you you can treat it with various shampoos and they often have things like zinc in them they might have selenium in them these are things to look for in the ingredients things with zinc and selenium are very good because they actually affect the microbes that cause the dandruff um, also salicylic acid the chemical relative of aspirin can sometimes also be in um, these remedies and that's very good as well and uh, sometimes coal tar in the old days people used to use coal tar it smells terrible but it uh, it it works a treat and then there's an antifungus you can rub in something called ketoconazole which also can be used and if you do this it suppresses the fungus that causes the dandruff the problem is, though, that if you are prone to that particular overgrowth of those yeasts and fungi that cause it, as soon as you stop the treatment, then you might get it back again. And this is exactly what is being referred to in the question, that it does relapse if you take the, the pressure caused by the shampoo off. So the best thing is, if you do get this, it's nothing to do with hygiene. People with perfectly clean hair get it equivalently with people who, who have dirtier hair. It's all to do with the, the microbes that inhabit you. And therefore, the best thing to do is to find a shampoo that's working for you and keep using it as long as it makes the problem go away. But, um, you know, it, it is a, a pretty much a modern era thing because we've all become so obsessed about hygiene these days, we tend to notice it. And I think the association with it 
being under 50. The cynic in me says, probably because by the time you're 50 odd, you've probably lost. Yeah. Well, you've lost <laughs> it. You, you, partly because you don't care, but you've lost all your hair. <laughs> the Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with me, a panel of experts taking on your science questions. Tim Revel is a new scientist journalist. Danny Green is a marine ecologist from Anglia Ruskin University. Laura Carter-Penman is from Bourne Hall. She's a fertility nurse. And we have James Pope, who's from the British Antarctic Survey, and he models climate change. Now, we've got a quiz uh, on the way for them. But before that, don't forget the quiz we have for you at home. We've got a game of Guess Who running through the programme. We've told you so far it makes a strange sound, which we played to you. We also learned this animal's eyeball is bigger than its brain. And your third clue is it can sprint at up to 70 kilometres per hour. Final clues are on their way, but what do you think it is? Now, I promised the panel of people earlier that we were going to have a little quiz to keep them on their toes. So this is the Naked Scientist Quest for Biggest Brain of the Week Award, OK? <laughs> Two teams, Tim and Danny versus Laura and James. So Tim and Danny, you're going to go first. And uh, basically, I ask the question, you get it right or wrong, you get a bing or a bong. OK, your first question, what colour? Not a bong like that, Tim. Where are you coming from? This is a family that show. Yeah, it's a family show. Um, Tim and Danny, what colour dye do you get? if you boil the sea snail, which is called murex? Um, Blue? I, I'll defer to Danny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's really embarrassing if I get it wrong. I'm going to say blue. Well, I'll, I'll give you three choices. How about that? You can have red or yellow or purple. Which, uh, which purple. do you think Let's it is? Go you're, going to go for, you're going to go for purple. Very was good. that yes. a bing? Yes, it yeah. was a bing. That's it's close it. to nice. blue, isn't it? <laughs> Tyrian purple, it's made by boiling sea snails. The snails normally use the secretion in question to sedate their prey. It turns purple when it gets exposed to the air. It takes tens of thousands of these snails to yield just gram quantities of the dye, and that's why the purple was traditionally a colour that denoted high status, because exactly because it was so rare. Okay, plus one for Tim and Danny. Very good. You're in the lead so far. It's good, given you only have one question, no no competition (laughs) yet. James and Laura, a giant squid is the same length as A, a London underground carriage, B, a minibus, or C, a double-decker bus. My gut says it's got to be the, the longer one. I'm yeah. trying to think what's longer, a I'm tube tra- carriage or a double-decker bus. My son is going to kill me that I've got this wrong because he tells me these sort of facts on a regular basis. Um, Can we find a friend? So we're going to go with the underground one. Do you think that's going to be the longest? Yeah, we'll go with underground. Underground. <laughs> no, unfortunately, actually, these squid... Danny, you must know the answer to this, do you? Was it the double... It, it is the double-decker mm, answer. Yeah, yeah they, they get 12 to 13 metres... And then the, the giant squid, double-decker bus is about 12 metres, so a colossal squid actually can be even bigger, 15 metres. So, Tim and Danny in the lead so far. Round two. Round two is a matter of time. Tim and Danny, there are trees alive older than the Egyptian pyramids. Is that true or is that false? True. Because the, yeah. the Methuselah tree, wasn't that 5,000 years? How old are the pyramids? <laughs> Actually, before we start, a few thousand. <laughs> so, the fire, yeah, the, the Methuselah tree is five thousand years old. I think that's older than the pyramids. Yeah. Let's go. Yes. So you're going for true. you're going yeah. that this is true. 
Oh, yes. There, there are specimens of bristlecone pine in California and Nevada, and they are at roughly 5,000 years old, capable of predating the pyramids, the oldest of which were erected 4,600 years ago. They're not the oldest living thing, though. Um, there are patches of, do you know what, Danny, another marine thing to put you on the spot, which are 200,000 years old. Sea grasses. Oh, sea grasses. Sea grasses, oh. yeah. Um, they've been documented as 200,000 years old and they live in the Mediterranean Sea. It's a clonal organism that's been growing there in these patches for, for 200,000 years. That. Amazing. <laughs> and Laura, um, can you redeem yourself? So these guys are on two so far. You've got zero. So you're doing well. Let's see if you can uh, improve on zero. Time passes faster for your face than it does for your feet. Is this true or false? Crikey. Um, <laughs> time, time, it's all to do with gravity, isn't it, I guess? And the gravity at your head is different to the gravity at your feet because you're further away from the sun. Yeah, we'll assume the you're standing up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, I don't know. It's still, I'm still guessing either way. I'm not a physicist. Um, I don't know. What's your thought? I don't know. Your age shows more on your face, doesn't it? I mean, that's a basic one to go for. We'll, we'll go with that, yeah. Yeah, we're going to go with face. Time passes faster for your face than your feet. True or false? You have to give me a true or false answer. Faster for the face. Face is older. True. Um, the, the logic was dubious, but the answer was, was correct. Um, assuming you are standing up, Einstein's theory of general relativity, which, of course, you'll be very familiar with as a, as a fertility nurse there, Laura, yeah, um, yeah. it states that the closer you are to the centre of the Earth, the slower time passes. At the top of Mount Everest, for example, a year is 15 microseconds shorter than at sea level. So time does actually pass a bit faster for your face than it does for your feet. You're off the bottom. OK, if they get this wrong, it goes to tiebreaker. If they get this right, then you you really are not the biggest brains of the week. Okay, here we go. This round is all about technology, and we want to know, does this technology exist? In other words, is it tech yes versus tech no? Did you see what we did there? That was cool, wasn't it? Okay, Tim and Danny. Radiation blocking boxer shorts. Tech yes or tech no? Maybe in Japan, because they have a lot of issues with radiation, don't they? Yeah. (laughs) No, with like nuclear power plants and things. Boxer shorts is is a weird phrase here because don't they sometimes put sort of things in front of you if you're having various scans to protect vital bodily organs so they mm. might not be boxer but shorts they're, they're but always they're inventing sort of... things i think it might be i think it might be tech true yes they might too. not work are you going to take yes or tech no tech yes tech you're yes. going to take yes Yep, it's uh, unveiled at the Consumer Electronics Show this year. Uh, Spartan's radiation-blocking boxer shorts are made from a fabric which incorporates silver fibres woven into the cotton so they block radio frequency signals from smartphones and then they can't irradiate your private. So this, Laura, would be very interested in this. You can you refer all your... Steve, yeah. Tim needs these, clearly, well, so he can, you know... Yeah, I saw him, <laughs> that's a question, I saw him and thought of this. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking your patients. You could yeah. say, look, you could get a set of these. Um, the other bonus is that the silver means that the underwear is also antibacterial so that will keep coliforms at bay in your nether regions um well look you have lost but do you want to have a go at the do you want to see if you can sort of get two points anyway you, you, do, you, you have a go why not go on. okay your your tech yes or tech no is um trip sensitive shoes that can summon help if you should fall over is that a tech yes or a tech no Mm, tricky because there's lots of technology tricky out there to help. Trippy. <laughs> trippy, definitely trippy, along with the techno theme. My gran um, had one of those sort of panic buttons for when she fell. Yeah, and there's so not, you it, can get things that tell you not to leave the house now for dementia patients and stuff like that. So, are you going to take yes or take no? Yeah, I think we've got to go yes. You're going to take yes. Oh, I'm, go- I'm getting. Hey! <laughs> 
before you could snatch defeat from the yes. top. So I, 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 I was getting some evil looks. So. I was like, oh, no, really? <laughs> um, yeah, Evone have made some smart shoes. They've got accelerometers, gyroscopes and pressure sensors in them. So they can detect if you should take a tumble. So they're potentially very helpful, as you say, for elderly people. But also they have their eye on hikers and climbers whose adventures might lead them into remote locales where they could take a tumble. And apparently these shoes come with their own sort of network subscription so they can send data and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I guess you could say they come with a running cost. <laughs> oh. Do they so, use them outside Weatherspoons on a Friday night? I don't know, Matt, that could come in handy, <laughs> couldn't it? OK, thank you very much. Anyway, our big brains this week, give yourselves a big round of applause and you can please please salute our big brains. Dan, Danny and Tim, very well done. The prize is you go home with your reputation intact. Okay, okay. Back to the questions. Danny, can you have a think about or ponder on this one for Sam? Some people say we know more about space than we do our own oceans. Is this true? What do you think? In short, I'd say yes, it is. And particularly if you're talking about understanding the topography and the shape of the oceans. Um, so, for example, we technically we we have got 100% of the oceans mapped, but the resolution is to 5,000 metres, whereas we've mapped 98% of Venus to 100 metres resolution. So we do know quite a bit about quite a few places, but not necessarily the bottom of the sea. Yeah, no. But there is actually a big movement in 2017. There's a group called the General uh, Bathymetric Chart of the Oceans, or GEBCO for short, and they're launching this huge effort to map everything in more detail by 2030. And this is a big collaborative thing, which would mean that, um, you know, ships that are out doing things for fisheries or for recreation would also be mapping the oceans using multi-beam sonar, which is obviously a lot quicker than just a single beam at one at a time. Mm. There's this huge collaborative effort to map the oceans in more detail. However, some ecologists are concerned that this also may lead to a huge race to try to mine the oceans more. There's lots of precious minerals down there. There's diamonds, gold, obviously oil. We're already on the oil wagon. So there's an issue that is this going to lead to conservation or to exploitation? I wondered if you were going to say something else when you mentioned the sonar and conservation issues, because there is a question as well that one of the reasons we see things like giant mammal, big mammal beachings, whales driving themselves onto beaches is because of distress caused by marine noise and underwater sound pollution. Yes, exactly. So this is another big issue. It's also associated with um, oil rigs and the whole the whole process of exploration of the sea as well as exploitation. But is sonar of the kind used yeah. by shipping, is that destructive and disturbing to the yes, uh, it is, environment yes. so that there's, there's, and the behaviour of, of these animals? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of evidence that this is interfering with their navigation systems and causing them to beach. So it's a bit of a worry that in order to understand the ocean, we could actually be doing damage. It could be disrupting it even more, yeah. Hmm. Tim? Why is the uh, ocean not mapped much better? You'd imagine it's much, much harder to map the surface of Venus, you know, millions of miles away than it is to map the ocean floor. There's a lot of water in the way. (laughs) (laughs) Just in short, it makes it quite difficult. And obviously there's some areas that are mapped a lot in a lot more detail. So we've we've mapped about 10 to 15 percent to 100 metres because those are the shipping routes and the places we go to. But the areas that we rarely go to with really turbulent seas are going to be less less well understood at this stage. I spoke to a group of marine scientists at the University of Aberdeen a few years ago and one of them passed on the sobering fact that he ventured, not personally, but with a probe, ventured to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. It's about seven miles, you know, 12 kilometres down, very long way down and the first thing he saw when he reached the seabed was 
a plastic, plastic raincoat. Plastic raincoat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he said it's just a, a staggering. You know, there's nowhere you can go almost where you don't see the destructive influence of people. That, that's stuck in my mind for you know good reason. Now, sticking with the water, though, James, one for you. Chris has, has highlighted a question for us on Twitter. And Chris says, why are rising sea levels and melting ice caps a problem apart from the obvious? People think about the obvious, about the inundation of, of coastal towns and cities. But some of the more probably less well-discussed issues are sort of around freshwater sources. So the three types of ways we get freshwater. Um, if you live somewhere like the Himalayas, you get it from monsoon rains and glaciers. If you live somewhere like the UK you get it from reservoirs or aquifers. So aquifers are um, water storage underground in permeable rocks. What's possible is that near coastal regions, if the sea level rises high enough, it can actually flow and spill over from the sea into the aquifer and essentially poison the aquifer by introducing a saline component and making it no longer suitable for fresh water. Other issues, my mum lives up in Southport and they have a lot of salt marshes up there. So that's land that is at or just below sea level that gets inundated by the brackish water, so saline, freshwater mix. So you get an entirely different type of ecostructure there. But obviously, if that inundated rice paddies or standard arable land here in the UK, you just lose the ability to grow crops in the area. But it's always worth saying that sea level rise is probably the least of our issues in terms of climate change. Under its most extreme scenario, we're looking at only a maximum of one metre by 2100 sea level rise because the ice sheet, so that's the bit of ice that's on actually on ground um, currently, it just takes a long time to melt. I mean, if you put some ice cubes on the desk right now, they take a long time to melt and ice sheets take even longer. You're talking several thousands of years even to get some of the more vulnerable ice sheets to completely collapse. So it's probably not a huge issue immediately. So it's not so much the the actual water movement that is the issue, it's what goes with it. It's the mechanism that's driving the ice to melt, that's causing a rise in global temperatures, that's going to have other knock-on consequences directly for the inhabited land area, rather than just a direct impact of sea level rise. Yeah, I I would suspect that most coastal regions would see impacts from um, things like extreme weather phenomena. You could argue that even half a metre rise makes a coastal area more susceptible to, to storm surges from hurricanes or even just bad weather like we see here in the UK. So it's not completely write-offable, but certainly it's not sort of uh, some sort of dystopian flooded future. And how much sea level rise are we looking at probably? You said the worst case scenario might be a metre or so, but how much are we looking at probably if we go following the trajectory we appear to be on? And let's assume, you know, we end up with about a one and a half degree rise across this century, what sort of sea level rise is that going to translate into? So the one on the 1. 1.5 um, degree rise, so the recent report that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change produced on this, they estimated it would be somewhere in the region of about 0. 0.6, I think with an uncertainty range of about 0. 0.3 to 0. 0.7 of a metre. So there's an element that we're sort of committed to a certain extent, but I think from memory, a lot of that is mainly due to just the warmer planet means that actually the ocean the, the size of the ocean just expands the water expands in size so it's thermal expansion less than actually the melt of ice sheets and glaciers because the poles have melted in the past haven't they in earth's history we have had a planet in the past where there was no ice at either pole yes and conversely when we had the last glacial maximum so about twenty thousand years ago sea level was as much as 120 meters lower so in some respects we've had 120 meters of sea level rise we could, if we melted everything that was left, get another 70. But 
it would take an awful long time to melt everything that was left. So that's sort of reassuring and not reassuring all at the same time. And I guess it depends where you live. If you live in Cambridge. <laughs> Could be Cambridge-on-Sea before too long. Thank you very much, James. I'm glad I invested in that property. I'm going to have a beachfront property. I'm going to keep driving my car as much as possible now to drive up sea level. Right? Of course, I'm not. I'm taking it all very seriously. James, thanks very much. Laura, can you help us with this? David on our forum has said, what do we actually mean by the word infertile? Infertile is actually quite an old term that was used, really. Um, We say that couples are infertile if they've been trying for a year and haven't conceived naturally. But we would actually consider most of our patients to be something more subfertile, really, that they have issues with their fertility, but that can be assisted. Or mainly, there's a lot that can be done with just lifestyle changes. Weight has a huge impact, smoking, alcohol, heat, we talked about stress factors, environmental factors. So really, I think infertile is quite an old-fashioned term and we should be moving to more the term of subfertile. To what extent do you think that the rising trend in infertility is because of our modern lifestyles? We're we're living life where we're burning the candle at both ends, aren't we? I think it has a, a huge impact. We like to have it all and do it all as females you know we all want to have these amazing careers and unfortunately our bodies don't match with that our bodies still want us to be having children in their in our 20s and early 30s our bodies aren't designed to be having babies in their late you know in our late 30s and early 40s we spend a lot of time talking about um, reproduction in schools and how not to have children but we don't tell people when to start having children so what should we be saying then I think we should be explaining how you get pregnant. We need to go back to basics, but we need to be explaining to people that, you know, when fertility is going to have an impact. Um, For women, you know, it's 32, 33, 35 is a real start of the cliff. And it does have an impact on men as well. You see lots of, you know, older, you know, Mick Jagger with his hundreds of children that he seems to be having. Um, but Allegedly. I think, yeah, yeah. And, and that what gives people the impression that, uh, oh, I can put it off till tomorrow. Yeah. And I think, you know, lots of older pop stars, you know, funnily enough, they all seem to have twins in their 40s really easily, you know, makes well, you think, you know, are they actually having reproductive therapy and not talking about it? So I think we should be being more honest with ourselves and more honest with the younger generation and making it easier to be back to work. All the things that go with that, the social factors that go with that, that you can be at work and be a mum and it's not a bad thing. Thanks for that, Laura. OK, Danny, how about this one for you? This is from Tamsin. Do immortal jellyfish really exist? Perish the thought. Immortal jellyfish. Is there such a thing? Could there be such a thing? Yes. So, I mean, it's not immortal in the way that in, in the old movie The Highlander is immortal um, so not chopping off heads and absorbing their powers unfortunately but yeah there is a jellyfish called um, Teratopsis dorni and it was actually discovered by accident by a, um, a lazy grad student who was doing some experiments on them over the summer and his name was Christian Sommer and he, um, he had the Medusa in the tank which is the um, jellyfish form that we know and love, the adult form with the bell and the tentacles and he sort of left them over the summer and he, he went off and had, went on holiday. When he came back he expected to find some dead Medusa, maybe some polyps. All he found was polyps which is the juvenile form. That's the form that sits on the bottom 
and then that eventually grows into smaller medusa, and then they are sexually re- reproductive, and then they produce planular larvae, and they come back down into um, polyps again. And all they found was polyps. We thought, that's strange. What's happened? Where are all the dead ones? Where are all the different stages? So then they did some experiments, and they discovered that what was happening was that when these animals get stressed they revert to a juvenile state. So it's a little bit like the Benjamin Button of, um, of um, Nidaria, I guess. So they get stressed um, and then they can go back into being a, a polyp and they can go again and they can do it again. They can do it for, forever as far as we know in a laboratory system at least. So they transform the body of the big one, the parent, for yeah. want of a better phrase, into lots of little blebby off bits, which well, are the polyps. Back into one. And it's, it's a little bit like, um, like a butterfly going back to a caterpillar. It's a bit like that. But it's also, it's, it's reabsorbing and, and re-sort of deploying yeah. all its body parts to make it a totally new form of the organism. Yeah. And, so and not just one, but, but many. Yeah. So it, it's a process called um, trans-differentiation. And apparently there's, there's talk amongst um, medical scientists like yourself to use this in a way for, for human health and to reduce the ageing process. But if what, you're, if what you're saying is true, that these animals can just basically turn themselves back into a more primitive form of themselves, there, there will be some, some jellyfish cells in the adult that turn into juvenile jellyfish cells. But then when yes. those little ones grow up to make big ones, they're going to make new cells, aren't they? So the, yeah. the, the cells that are in there are not... That there might be the odd cell that's from the original parent, but they'll have grown to make lots of newer cells, won't they? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Is, it, is it strictly immortal then? Well, it's immortal in the sense that it can just keep going sort of again and again, ultimately. I'm not sure. Is that not it, like, it's not immortal in the sense, in the that, sense that you know, killed. like a human being can reproduce. I mean, Laura will know. And you take an egg cell that an adult has made, but actually made when her mother was pregnant with her, and that egg is then fertilized by a sperm, and from that one cell, you then make a whole new organism. But at the same time, you've still made all new cells. So the, the it, you could call a human immortal then, in the sense that yeah. it's, it's sort of similar to what the jellyfish is doing, isn't it? It's not. Yeah. I mean, I suppose technically, it's not immortal but it's probably the closest thing that we have on earth that we know of to immortal perhaps <laughs> why do you think the jellyfish do this is it is it some kind of defense mechanism i to... think it's defense mechanism it's preservation now it's not been observed in the wild keep in mind because obviously this is a difficult animal to study it's only been seen in the laboratory and as far as we know it can just keep doing this over and over and even if you pinch them with a pair of forceps they can do this within three hours they can revert back from the reducer stage back to the polyp stage so it happens very quickly as well yeah, well, that could be useful in medicine, couldn't it, if you needed to sort of repair a bit of yourself and you could just grow another one. Well, there you go, Tamsin, that you can have a sort of near-immortal jellyfish. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't know that. Thank you very much, Danny. And uh, moving on, Tim, Frankie has a question for you. She's from Cambridge. My question is, how much will technology feature in our future? Will it take our jobs? So is Frankie out of a job owing to technology and AI and all that kind of thing you were discussing earlier? Uh, I guess it depends what Frankie does. Um And it also depends who you ask. So one very famous study that looked into what jobs will be automated in the future came from the University of Oxford. And they reckoned that about half of all jobs in the US and a third in the UK were at high risk of automation. Basically, the job would be given to a robot um, at some point in the following 20 years. But since then, that study has been questioned a lot. And a lot of people say it's actually a lot lower. And so it's really, really hard to know what's actually going to happen in the future. But I think there are some examples from history to look at. And one of the things people talk about is will robots actually create more jobs than they take? 
And so the famous example of this is the job of a bank teller, someone who you talk to at a bank to help you with your banking. Many years ago, the ATM was invented and people said, well, that we have no need for bank tellers anymore because you go to a machine and it gives you your money and tells you your balance. Why would you need a person anymore? But what happened in the next 20 years was actually it became so much cheaper to open a bank because most of the work happened at the bank at the ATM machine that more banks were opened. And after 20 years, there were more bank tellers after the invention of the ATM than there were before. So some people are suggesting that automation in its current wave will have the same effect. Lots of jobs will become automated, but people will then get extra jobs on the back of that. And the sort of more manual or less interesting parts of the job will be automated away. But the short answer is we just don't know yet. It's a worrying time, really, isn't it? Do you think scientists will always have a job, though, because um, <laughs> someone's got to dream up? Uh... Uh, asking for a friend, Chris? Yeah. Or... <laughs> I, I guess so. I, I would think also maybe journalists as well, because uh, asking the sort of hard questions and conveying it in a way that you think people are going to be interested in it, I think that's going to be quite a tough act to to match, isn't it? Definitely. But there are aspects of this that are already being automated. In terms of journalism, there are AIs that will look at academic papers and write them in short summaries. That's almost my job currently. So there are loads and loads of aspects of this. There are also AIs that will look at, for example, social media and make a story out of that, which many journalists also make a living. So I think no one is completely safe, but there will be new things for us to do. And perhaps the mundane aspects will be automated away, hopefully. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Thank you, Tim. Now, James, um, got a question here from Donald on the Naked Scientist Forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash forum. He says, if the Earth wasn't tilted, what would be the impact on our climate? That's, it's a brilliant question. The short answer is that um, basically every single day would be 12 hours long everywhere. But your latitude would, would affect how high the sun was in the sky. So if you're at the equator, you'd always have sort of 12 hours with a very high midday directly in the middle of the sky sun. If you're at the poles, you would have a very low right on the horizon sun for 12 hours a day. So the energy we get from the sun comes in. You can sort of imagine if you uh, if you took a took a football or something and just put straight lines towards your towards this football. That's sort of the energy from the sun. Without that tilt, all of that energy would go into the equators. There'd be less energy going into the polar regions. So you'd have more energy transfer from the, the equator and the low latitudes up to the higher latitudes. So in the mid-latitudes where we are, we'd probably get stormier um, because there'd just be more movement of air. Um, and overall, the UK, it'd, be like, it'd probably be much like sort of the week before Easter permanently what with the traffic you mean or <laughs> but, but being more serious for a minute so basically the temperature we experience is because it's the amount of solar input the amount of energy falling on the land for that length of time and so we have summer because the earth is tilted and we see more sun during the summer period and we have winter because we see a bit less because that part of the earth's surface is tilted away so the sun's not as high in the sky yep. so, so basically it's thanks to the fact that the earth is tilted that we have seasons and therefore we have a seasonal climate yes exactly yeah, because someone said to me the other day that Mars is also tilted about, because the Earth is tilted 23 and a half degrees, Mars is tilted about the same. So therefore Mars sort of has seasons as well, but it's a, a great deal colder than it is here on Earth. Earth has got very lucky. It's in that sort of, We're in this really nice little slot in the solar system where if we were a few hundred thousand kilometres nearer or a few hundred thousand kilometres further away from the sun, it may be almost an uninhabitable. And it's that sort of, that variation. We're just in a, a real sweet spot. And our, again, our tilt, aids that but also that tilt is what um 
added to things like the ice ages. So the, the glacial interglacial cycles were huge ice sheets waxed and waned over, especially northern Europe. That is part of that was due to the changes in the tilt and also the change in the shape of our orbit around the sun. So why should the tilt change? I don't actually know. I think the tilt was sort of very early on in the Earth's formation. The Earth was slightly knocked off its spinning axis. So it put it onto that slight tilt and it's just got... A, a natural a wobble, wobble like, like a sort of spinning top, essentially. And so owing to the fact that it, it is just gently changing that degree of inclination over very long timescales, is that why we go through phases of the Earth's a bit warmer for a while, it's a bit colder for a while, and that's what people call the natural cycles or sort of Milankovitch cycle? Yeah. So when people say the Earth has always, throughout its four and a half billion year history, gone through cycles when the climate has changed... How do we know that the warming that we're seeing today is owing to our influence and not just the Earth entering another of these natural variations? Because the Earth has completely frozen up in the past. It's completely melted its poles and been really, really hot in the past, hasn't it? It's one of the the toughest parts of of climate science in many respects. So we have different ranges of data. Some of that is the modern day uh, satellite observations, weather stations. That's all very new, recent, last 50 years. We have... Um, proxy data, which comes from things like tree rings, um, the ice cores, or even sediment cores from the deep ocean. Like we can go back about 65 million years for some of these sediment cores. And we can, looking at the fossilized plankton and the chemistry of the shells, we can approximate what the temperatures would have been. But ultimately, what we can see is that nothing has happened as fast. Nothing that we've really seen happens as fast as what we are currently observing. And that's that rate of change that makes the anthropogenic effect, the man-made effect of climate change, different to natural climate change, which has always happened and will continue to always happen with our signal on top of it. Thank you for that, James. Laura, let's uh, move over to you. Sophie has been in touch on Facebook and wonders if you can help her out with this. When, during their monthly cycle, are women most fertile? Well, most women average a 28-day cycle. Some ladies have slightly shorter cycles and some have slightly longer cycles. And most ladies ovulate about halfway through that cycle, so around about day 14. So from a fertility perspective, we would usually recommend regular sexual intercourse from around about day 10, because sperm lasts sort of five to seven days. An egg will only last sort of one to two days maximum. So ladies are mainly fertile from probably about day 14 of their cycle round to about day 21 of their cycle. So it's all to do with ovulation occurring on day 14. But what about if a person doesn't have a regular cycle? Because that what you, the data you've given us assumes that a person knows where they are in that yeah. cycle. So what happens then? So for us, we might recommend that you have some scans so you can see what's happening to see whether what the follicle production is um, going on within your cycle. Patients can try using luteinizing hormone sticks, so sort of surge kits as they're called. You can buy them over the counter. Pee on a stick and it tells you whether you're ovulating or not. Okay. Obviously, for ladies then that aren't detecting that, they may need some help with something like clomiphene, a reproduction of a follicle-stimulating hormone that usually occurs naturally but isn't in those so that ladies. encourages the, the chemical process of... Of ovulation, ovulation. Yeah. yeah. And then obviously we would link that again with scanning so that we can see that there is a follicle production as well. So what roughly what fraction of people do have a regular cycle and what fraction have irregular cycles? So probably one in six ladies have an irregular cycle, so it's quite a high high proportion really. I mean, we keep focusing again here on sort of female factor, but actually 40% of problems are male factor problems, 40% are female 20% sometimes sit between the unknown and also um, is a mixture of two. Quite often it appears that patients are drawn together if they both have an, infer- have an infertility issue. 
Oh, well, they say opposites <laughs> attract, but not in yeah. this case. Um, James, you, you were going to say? Yeah, I was going to wonder, um, you're talking about sort of kits you can buy it, buy over the counter. Would you put any stock in smartphone apps that sort of suggest your fertility in the cycle? Yeah, there's lots out there now which help you track your cycle. They would recommend that you track your temperature because there's supposed to be a slight temperature rise when you ovulate. There's now um, a bit like Fitbits and things like that. They're now out there for fertility as well. It's a, it's a big sort of up and coming burgeoning market within that side of things as well. And do it people, can help. Do people with say they, they find they're useful, or do you think it just helps people to focus their mind? They get a plan in place, and so they tend to stick to it, which means they're more likely to be successful. Um, for some patients, it's really helpful. It gives them for a focus. For others, it just absolutely adds to the stress of the situation. And we would recommend that they go and seek help from a specialist, go and see their GP, speak to a fertility nurse. You know, there's there's lots of things out there to help. And actually, the apps are useful. But I think sometimes for patients who are really struggling, it's not the best thing. It really adds to their stress. And some people use these apps because they don't want to get pregnant. Is that a risky strategy then? I would say that's a very risky strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, thank you very much. And it is no laughing matter, obviously, if, uh, if it does go wrong, because it, yeah. it spells disaster for some people doesn't it right time for the final clue for our guess who i am my scientific name is struthio camelus struthio camelus and i have three stomachs does that give it away team what does everyone think do you know what our thing is that makes that funny grunting noise it can run at 70 miles an hour and has an eye bigger than its head what do you reckon panel james go i'm, what do you I'm gonna go out and limb here i'm gonna go for a camel he's yeah. going camel camelus any advance mm, on camel that's a hint when you said that the eyes were, were massive, hmm. I thought it was some sort of monkey thing. But I'm not so sure now with the 70 miles per hour and the three stomachs that's thrown me. I thought it could be like an ostrich or something like that. They can run quite fast and they have, <laughs> they have big eyes. Big eyes. Yeah. They do have big eyes, yeah. It, it is an ostrich. Oh, oh, well done. It is, it is an ostrich, yes. The Struth is an Australian um, kind of exclamation. That must Struth. be why. Look at the size of that ostrich. Well, there we must leave it this week because the arrow of time has defeated us. But just before we go, we would like to ask you please to help us. We give you our programmes every week for free and we hope you enjoy them. But we do, of course, have to meet our running costs and also to pay our very hardworking staff. And that means we need to raise funds to do this. And to safeguard next year's programming, we need to raise £50,000 by the end of this year. Now, the good news is that if everyone listening to just this one single programme were to contribute the cost of a single cup of coffee, then we would have sufficient funds for the next few years, not just this one. So look, please, if you appreciate what we do for you, consider buying us a virtual cup of coffee for Christmas. We've explained how you can do that at nakedscientist.com slash donate. Thank you very much for listening and thank you for sending in your questions so that our panel, Tim Revel, Danny Green, Laura Carter-Penman and James Pope could answer them for you. Izzy Clark put the programme together. Do join us at the same time next week when we're going to be discovering the marvels of manufacturing. How do things get from the brains of engineers and turn into the stuff we need? Tune in to find out. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. 
Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts.